It's on the screen behind me as well. And it says this. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded their minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, which, which uh, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. All right, I just want to extend my welcome to Gavs. It's great to have you all here this afternoon. My name's Jacob, if I haven't met you before. Uh, and it's great to be continuing in on this series, looking really at a, at a bunch of questions uh, and a bit of a foundational understanding of, of what the Bible is and, and what we do with it. And I'm, I've been looking forward to this series for a long time. I loved kicking it off last week and I'm excited about today as well. And like Gav said, we're, we're coming today to a question, which is, I think, a really big and important one, which is, how is it that you can know if the Bible's true? Um, which is an, an important question to be able to answer. I think I've mentioned up here on maybe like a dozen times that I'm a, a fan of conspiracy theories. Now, for, for the sake of my own credibility as being up here, I need to point out that there's a difference between being like someone who enjoys conspiracy theories and being an actual conspiracy theorist. Um, I'm, I'm just one of those guys that likes to listen to other people with their conspiracies, not, not so much making them myself. And um, I've recently, I've got a friend at the moment who's the kind of walking definition of having too much time on his hands. And late at night, he often sends me links to YouTube videos about reported kind of UFO sightings. Now, Gavin and I didn't discuss our, our intros. We don't talk about aliens every week here um, at City Light. Just this week, they're getting a few mentions. Um, and he sends me these videos of kind of different uh, so-called evidence for kind of, you know, UFOs, like full-blown alien spaceships. And, um, and, and it's interesting, I don't really actually open most of the links he sends me, but I opened one the other day and it was, uh, you know, this uh, United States Air Force pilot, he, you know, very coherent, very kind of educated, sensible sounding person, explaining about how it was when he was out on a mission, he got sent to investigate a blip on a radar, when he got there there's this kind of floating orb darting around that when he got closer shot off into space. And that's all you really get from, from the video is him explaining that. Um, and it's, it's interesting. Now, I don't, I don't know kind of what you make of that kind of thing. Um, for the record, I don't believe in UFOs. But, uh, but I was thinking about it. Look, you know, people out there do. And I was wondering, does it, would it have really any impact on your day-to-day -day if you did decide that, yeah, there were kind of UFOs kind of coming down, floating around and darting off? And I think the answer is, like, no. It, it wouldn't really actually affect much at all. You can kind of think about it. It can be an interesting thing to investigate. Um, but it wouldn't really change your day by day if it turns out that, you know, from time to time, aliens came and hovered and, and went away again, right? It wouldn't, it wouldn't change your, your, your work life. It wouldn't really change your relationships. Uh, it wouldn't probably change your day-to-day -day happiness um, a whole lot either. Um, and it's probably not the kind of thing that you'd be willing to defend at, at gunpoint. But the question, is the Bible true, um, is, is not like this. And I think it's actually a, a league above this and a league above really most other questions um, of, of truthfulness, of finding out whether something's true or not. The answer to the question, is, is the Bible true, has humongous implications for your life. The answer to that question changes everything because the Bible doesn't claim just to be an account of some interesting things that happened. It claims to be the God who made the world actually addressing us directly with, uh, with information and instruction as to, to how to make the most of our, out of our lives 
how to understand who we are, um, how to have a relationship with him, and, and then also what to do. And it affects everything in light of that. It's, it's, a, it's a claim that throughout the world to this day, uh, people daily are dying for, that, uh, the, dying for the belief that in the Bible we see a message that is not just a nice message or a good message or an interesting message, but it's, but it's a true message in, in the fullest sense of the word, that God is involved in this, that God has sent it to us, and in it, it tells the story of how it is that God has entered this world as a, as a man in Jesus Christ, died and rose again. And so, what we need to be able to answer then is, well, look, that's, a, that's some pretty big claims that the Bible is making. Is it true? Is it true? And I think it's a question that we, we can find very hard to answer. And so what I want to do today um, is, is try to explain and answer this question. And it's not an easy kind of thing to get around, but what I want to kind of say is that the way that we can know that the Bible is true is by seeing for ourselves the glory of God in it. And that's what I want to kind of unpack as we kind of walk through um, the passage that Gav read and a few other things today. But before we do that, I'm going to pray. So um, if you feel like it, uh, pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are coming now to a question that has just massive implication for our lives. And we know that in this room, we probably have a bunch of people with different perspectives and understandings and, and beliefs um, about this question. People who are, who are coming in here fully convinced um, that, that the Bible is your word. People who have been convinced in the past and who are now doubting and, and less sure. Uh, and people here that, that outrightly just do not agree with, with the statement that the Bible is true. And Lord, we thank you that we are all here. We thank you that you've got us here um, because you love us and because you care about us. And we pray as we think about these things now that you just be with us in our minds as we think and, and wrestle and try to understand something that by its very nature is basically beyond our understanding. And so we pray that you'd help us in this now. Amen. So I want to do three things. I want to kind of walk through the passage that Gav read before, looking at how it is that the Bible calls us to see something. I want to think about uh, how it is that we can know that the Bible that we have in our hands is historically reliable. And then I want to try to explain how it is that in that reliable document of the Bible, that we can actually see the glory of God. That's my agenda for the next 30 minutes. So in, uh, we're going to look now at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 to 6 which is what Gav has already read. I'll, I'll get it back up on the screen if that's all right, Nick. Um, we're looking at this passage, and there's a lot in here, but the thing I want you just to see in this from the, from the Bible's own words is that the Bible speaks of true knowledge as being seeing something that is there. Um, it's not speaking about a, a, a you know, blind faith or a leap in the dark or a guess or a gamble or just trying to make the best of not knowing much, but what it talks about is an experience of seeing something. So let me read it again. Uh, from verse 3 it says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
Paul's answering the question here, how is it that two people can kind of look at the same thing, hear the same message, and have completely different conclusions about what it is? And what Paul is saying is that it comes down to what you can see. He's saying that there is something in the Bible's message that you can either see or miss. And at the heart of what that is, is is what do you see in the person of Jesus? So I want you to look with me at the logic of the passage. In verse 3, Paul writes, Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Now, the word gospel, this is just a shorthand word for basically the message about Jesus. It's the message that the Bible kind of holds and presents. Um, that, that Jesus came to the world to die and rise again, that we can have forgiveness in him. And Paul writes that that message, the gospel, is veiled to some, as in some people can't see it. And he's not saying that they can't see it as in like they can't read the words or they don't have an opportunity to hear the message or to be exposed to it. He's saying that to some people, this message is, is it's almost as if it kind of wasn't there. Um, He's he's getting into how it is that two people can read the Bible or two people can hear the Bible explained at church or can grow up in a home where the Bible's taught kind of day in, day out and walk away with one person saying, yeah, this is true, this is amazing, this is good, this is the best thing in my life and another person saying, look, I just don't see it, I don't think it's true. And Paul is saying that it comes down to whether or not they've been able to see something. And the next few verses we get, a look at what that thing is that some people see in the, in the gospel message and, and some people don't. Um, and I've put it, the next slide that I've got up on the screen, um, I've put this kind of in tables. For, for verse 4 and verse 6, Paul is kind of showing what it is and he's comparing these two types of people, someone who doesn't see it in verse 4 and then, and then people that do see it in verse 6. And he's got them in kind of parallel, which is hard to see when it's, you know, in the way that we normally read. So this, this helps me understand it at least. And so in verse 4 and in verse 6, he he starts with the description of beings that either blind or give sight. Verse 4 starts, the God of this world, which is a reference to Satan, uh, a being whose plan it is is to stop people actually seeing the truth of of who God is, saying that the, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded people's minds so that they can't see. Then in contrast to this, verse 6 starts, the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, which is a reference to the creation of the world when the God of the Bible um, spoke light into existence, saying the God who made the universe, in, in some people's case, has shone in our hearts to, to show something. And then we see in both of these verses the same thing, just in kind of different wording, which, um, which is clear in the kind of parallel. It says, what's the thing that some people haven't seen and some people have seen? Well, Paul says it's the gospel or the knowledge of the glory. Now, glory is another word I think we need a bit of definition for because it's not one that you kind of use in your everyday kind of talk. Uh, glory is this idea of heaviness or bigness. It's this the sense of kind of awesomeness or majesty or splendor. Are other words that would do the kind of same thing. It's seeing the, the gravity of something. And he's saying that some people see this and some people don't, but where do you either see this or not see this? Verse 4 says the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So Christ, that's Jesus. Verse 4 is saying that some people can't see glory in him. And then verse 6, it looks like it's a different glory because it says the glory of God. But, but where do you see that glory? Again, it's in the face of Christ. So in short, Paul is saying that there is a glory, a bigness or a splendor that some people see in Jesus and some people don't see in Jesus. 
There's a bunch of questions that are going to come out of this, but for the moment, all I want us to see is that according to Paul, the experience of being convinced of the truthfulness um, of the gospel, but then by extension the Bible, isn't a matter of being argued into it, nor is it a leap in the dark, nor is it a guess or a gamble, but it's seeing something that Paul says is there. And the question is, when you look at Jesus, do you see someone who is glorious? Do you see even God who made the world through him, or do you not? Now, as we think about this, it might feel a little bit like how it is that you know, two people can watch the same movie and walk away with, with different experiences. Um, and it's a bit like this. This is me and my wife Sarah's um, experience of every movie we watch. The best way to know if Sarah will hate a movie is if I like it. Um, the best way to know if she'll like it is if I hate it. Now, that rings true like 90% of the time, seemingly. No, we have some that we can, we can enjoy. Um, but I think everyone's had that experience, right, where you can be sitting next to someone, same chair, same TV, same lighting, same sound, same experience, and have one person walk away being like, that was amazing, that's one of the best things I've kind of seen all year, and another person saying, ah, nah, I wasn't really into it. And I think, so, and it's just subjective, right? It's kind of, it's just what you make of it, and that's completely okay. You don't kind of just argue about it. You just kind of accept the fact that two people can experience the same thing a little bit differently. And I think a lot of people think maybe that's kind of what deciding about the Bible or, or Christianity or faith is like. You know, it's kind of true for some people, not that true for other people, but that's okay. We can all kind of disagree, disagree, because no one's really right. It's just a different experience of truth. But that's not the language that Paul is, is using here. He's using language of sight and blindness, not of one perspective and another perspective. To stand, to have someone who can see stand next to someone who is blind and, and look out, say, at the ocean and the sunset, and have the person that can see say, that sunset is, is amazing and just you know, beautiful, and have a, and the blind person say, look, no, I actually can't see anything at all, doesn't mean that it's neither there nor not there. We, we all simply understand. It's just, no, one person can see it and another person can't, which is a pretty confronting claim that the Bible is making, that that's the experience of, of seeing and encountering God in the Bible. But the claim it's making is that it's not a subjective thing, but it's an objective thing. That there is something there to be seen, and the question is, do you see it? And, and I think some people get a bit stuck there because we kind of have this understanding in our culture that that doesn't really work because when it comes to the Bible, you're dealing with stuff that you can't really know if it's true or not. A major objection to the Christian faith is, you know, how can you then base your life on something like a book that was written 2,000 years ago? Because you can't really know exactly what happened. You can't know if it was reliable. You can't know if Jesus is real. Um, so it doesn't even matter if you're saying, can you see it in him or not? Uh, because we don't even know if it was even kind of that reliable an account to begin with. So what I want to look at now is how it is that we can know that the Bible is reliable. And the reason for this is because Paul has said, if you want to see the glory of God and know it's true, you have to look to Jesus. Jesus is the place you see it. So we need to know, are we even able to do that? Can we even actually get any sense of who Jesus was and what he did? Or is our Bible, what we have, just completely unreliable? And so I want to go through five points that I think help me understand the fact that what we have in the Bible is historically reliable. Um, and I'm going to try to punch through these five things as quickly as I can. And for the sake of time, I'm only going to be speaking right now 
about the New Testament. It's the, the kind of second part of the Bible written after Jesus by a bunch of different authors purely about him and what he did. And I want to ask the question, is there historical evidence for this? And I want to give you five facts about this. Firstly, the New Testament was written as literal history. The genre and style of the New Testament, and in particular the Gospels, but also the letters as well, were written with the understanding that it really happened. Or, or to convince the reader that it really happened. Not to, not to tell the reader that it's a kind of a parable or a fable or a myth, but to say, no, this is history. That's the style in which it's written. In the ancient world, there, there were legends and myths and epics and, and, and other sorts of writings that weren't dealing with cold, hard fact. There's always been writings that don't deal with facts. But that's not what the New Testament is. The Gospels and letters, they're written with details about times, places, other real people known from other parts of history, governors, rulers, real cities, real towns, and, and characters in it that actually went on to actually do other things in, this, in the space of history. The idea that, that the Gospels are, are not meant to be taken literally, but they're just kind of this kind of almost fiction with a hidden meaning underneath, is an absurd suggestion because that's not the sort of writing it is. C.S. Lewis, who is uh, a, you know, a professor of literature at Oxford University, um, said this about the Bible. It'll come up on the screen. He said, I've been reading poems, romances, vision, vision literature, legends and myths all my life. I know what they're like. I know that not one of them is like this. Of this text, there are only two possible views. Either this is reportage, or else some unknown writer in the second century without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern, novelistic, realistic narrative. If it is untrue, it must be narrative of that kind. The reader who doesn't see this has simply not learned to read. So that's in particular talking about the gospel accounts. I just want to show you one verse, though, from one of Paul's letters that you just can't really argue is talking about something figurative. He's talking about something literal. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, Paul writes this. It'll be on the screen. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and to the Twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So that's simply to say the Bible is written as if it really happened. And anyone that would say, oh, look, you know, it's not meant to be taken literally, the authors mean this to be taken literally, and it's, it's apparent. Um, the next fact I want to look at is that the New Testament was written too soon for a legend about Jesus to have evolved. Some people say, you know, oh, look, maybe they, they obviously wrote it as if it was true, but the reason they thought it was true was because some kind of long string of Chinese whispers, they passed down some story that got blown way out of proportion that it was, ended up being this thing that was bigger than it was. Um, but the evidence goes in the face of that. The estimated dates for the completion of the New Testament writings are, are estimated to be around 70 A.D., which is 40 years after Jesus. Um, some historians estimate that, that particularly some of the letters that, that people wrote and, and the Gospel of Mark may have been written as early as 50 or 60 AD, which is 20 or 30 years after Jesus. Um, and more skeptical estimates push it back to the furthest end being around between 90 and 100 AD. So 60, 70 years after Jesus. But the general consensus is 70 AD is kind of when most of it's going down. 
Now, we don't know the exact date, but what we know that even with the most skeptical views of when it was written, we're still talking about the Bible being written in the time that people who were there for the events described were still alive. Um, now, I don't know how many people here are into the, the Teacher's Pet podcast. It's kind of going around at the moment. Can I get a show of hands who's listened to any of the Teacher's Pet? Not as many as 11 a.m. You guys got to get onto it. There's this podcast at the moment. Um, it's like topping all the charts. And it's, this, it's a true crime investigation of something that happened in 1981 on the northern beaches of Sydney. And basically the claim that there's a, there's a bloke, Chris Dawson, and he did it, killed his wife 40 years ago. Now, it's, it's looking into this, um, this... this this crazy story, which is just simply crazy, about how someone has killed someone 40 years ago and hasn't been put on trial. But what's been fascinating in it is throughout the course of the investigation, and the podcast is just lots of interviews with family members, friends, people that were there, neighbours, just even though we're now almost 40 years after that happened, how, how easy it is to actually piece together what really happened to the point where, where people are agreeing uh, on, on exact conversations that happened, on what time of day conversations happened, what clothes people were wearing at certain times, where people um, kind of were, or, or how they were acting, or how they were talking, that, that 40 years is not that long a time to kind of be able to lose the truth. You can get to the bottom of something 40 years later simply by talking to people that were there. Now, the idea that in 40 years, Jesus went from being someone people had seen as an ordinary person to growing into this kind of mythy, mythological, legendary, larger-than-life God person, just goes in the face of how we understand truth to be conveyed. The Bible was written, the New Testament was written, in the same space where, the, where this happened, in and around Jerusalem and, and, and neighboring towns throughout the Roman Empire. The suggestion that in just 40 years, this kind of legend arose about him in Jerusalem by the people who were actually there for it um, is, is just an absurd thing to say. The third fact you've got to contend with is that the New Testament writers died for their accounts. Um, and you might well say, look, you know, they're not legends or myths, and they are meant to be taken as true, but maybe the people that wrote them, they're just lying. They're just making it up for some other motive, some other gain. They're writing as if Jesus did all these things and said all these things, but he didn't really. And you've got to ask if, if that's what someone's putting forward, is to what possible end would they have done that? These writers made no money, they didn't get famous, they didn't get you know, prestige. But on the other hand, they did get thrown in jail, uh, kicked out of their own countries, put to death, uh, lived lives of poverty, and not one of them at any point said, you know what, we actually made it up, it was a trick. Uh, it wasn't a very good trick, but now here we are. Um, it, it, it just never happened that way. Um, and so it's just another piece of evidence you've got to contend with. Uh, the fourth one is that the accounts in the New Testament are not contradicted by any other historical or archaeological evidence from the same period. It's not as if the four gospel accounts in the Bible and the letters around it are one view of Jesus and one view of what happened, but we're ignoring this kind of weight of other evidence that we have, either through archaeological finds or, or other pieces of writing from the time. There, there is nothing from this early, you know, 40 to 100 year period after Jesus that paints any kind of Jesus other than what we find in the Bible. You may have heard that there are things out there called the Gnostic Gospels. There are these other kind of accounts of Jesus' life that are out there. But these were written over 100 years later than what we have in the Bible today. They're the ones that could be very easily shown to be kind of, you know, down the, down the chain of 
oral tradition kind of blown up to be more than they are. But we have no other version of Jesus other than what we have in the Bible from that early time. Um, the, Muhammad in the Quran describes Jesus, and he was writing 600 years after the fact, not even claiming to have seen any of it or had someone who did see it other than that God told him a different version. What we have in the Bible is the unique only historical sense and we work out what Jesus was like. And the final thing I want to say on this is that the copies and translations of the New Testament that we have now accurately convey the words of the original authors. Some people would say, look, you know, maybe back in the day they did write it kind of true and it was all good back then, but somehow throughout history we've kind of warped it, we've changed it, uh, we don't have the original versions, and so there's no way of now knowing what the original authors said. Which again is just goes in the face of what, of, of what history tells us. Um, it's true that we don't have the original writings of the biblical authors, and that what we do have is copies of those writings. But that's just part of history. I want to show you this table up on the screen now. It's got a bunch of ancient accepted historical works uh, from a similar time period. Um, ones that are accepted by historians as true and reliable accounts just to show that, compared to everything else, the New Testament has an overwhelming amount of textual evidence. So Caesar's Gallic War, which was written about 50 BC, the, the earliest copy of copy of a copy of a copy of a copy that we have of what he wrote was written in 900 AD, which is 950 years after it happened. And since that 950 years one, they've found about nine or ten copies. And historians say, that's, that's great, we can, we can know what what Caesar wrote in this, in this account. Um, Tacitus wrote in uh, 100 AD. The earliest copy that we found was a copy written in 1100 AD, and there's been 20 copies of that found. And again, historians accept it as true. There is nothing that compares to the earliness of the, the New Testament documents that we found. The New Testament written somewhere between 40 and 100 AD. The first bit of a copy that we found um, I didn't, well, not we as in me, I didn't have anything to do with it, but, but, but the people have found, I wish I did, uh, around 130 AD, uh, a, a portion of, uh, of John's Gospel um, written on just one kind of little sheet of, of paper they found. A bunch of other scraps they found over those 200-year period, and they're still finding more year after year. Um, but in 350 AD, they've actually got a full, complete version of the New Testament in what's now known as the Codex Sinaiticus. So compared to the others, it's 300 years is a short amount of time. And the amount of copies that they've found, and again, early kind of handwritten in Greek copies, um, there's 5,000, as well as um, many others that have been translated. So the, the textual evidence for the Bible is just stronger than any historian could expect to find from anything else in the time period. And even in the copies we've got, we've got 5,000 copies, some of them have all got lots of differences, different like you know, spelling errors or words that have been swapped in or changed or, or whatever. When you've got 5,000 to work with, and entire people have given their lives to this, you can actually kind of trace back where the copies happened and where the mistakes happened and the changes happened to the point where they can now say that within like a 99% degree of accuracy, what we have is what the original authors wrote. Um, and, and the translations we have now, again, the New Testament was written in, in Greek, a language which is common and actually not actually really that hard to understand and translate, which means that we can now have in English extremely good representations of what the early authors, Peter, Paul, James and John and Matthew and Mark and whoever else, actually said. 
So we can read today and be confident that what we have in our Bibles is what the original authors recorded. Now, the point I'm making with this is that when we look at Jesus, we're not looking at a subjective view of him. We're not looking, oh, what does Jesus mean to me? Um, I you know, encountered Jesus in this way or this way. No, we're looking at history. There is a claim that, that Jesus was a certain person. He said certain things, was a certain way, did certain things. That we're not meant to be gullible, we're not meant to be foolish, but we're meant to actually look at objective truth. But my point is today that although that kind of historical reasoning I, I personally find very helpful in thinking about how it is you come to a truth in the Bible or knowledge of the Bible's truthfulness, that at the end of the day, all those arguments, knowing history and all that kind of stuff, is insufficient for, for coming to the full conclusion that the Bible is the Word of God. As far as you can get is that it's historically reliable, that it's good compared to other history. I think to get to the point, though, where you're like, this is true, this is life-changing, we need something more. We need something deeper. Which takes us back to what Paul said in those verses from 2 Corinthians, which is that we need to see the glory of God in the face of Christ. So we're going to turn our attention to that. What does it mean to see the glory? What's the difference between reading the Bible and finding it interesting and reading the Bible and walking away convinced that that is God at work in the book. And I think it's experiencing the realness of the Bible. I think it's hard to describe what this is like. I was thinking in some ways it's like the difference that comes from seeing a picture of the Great Barrier Reef and swimming in it. Without going to the Great Barrier Reef, you can be convinced that, you know, you can get some stats about how long it is, how big it is, how many species of fish or types of corals are there, you can see photos that might capture some of the clearness of the water, some of the color that's on show. But, but actually going there for yourself and, and, and snorkeling and swimming in it is a completely different experience altogether. It's this sensory overload of just magnificence. You swim in the, in the clear water, you can just feel it all around your body, the coolness um, on your arms and your legs, the, the sun beating down on your back. As you look around, your entire field of vision is just filled with colorful, dynamic movement. As you notice, different parts of the way the light is reflecting through the waves. As you see coral and seaweed kind of blown back and forth and fish darting in and out and all around you. It's, it gives you a knowledge of the Great Barrier Reef that you could just not gain from years of just searching about it on the internet or looking at pictures. And I think in a, in a similar way, and it is only in a similar way, we're called to, to work out our, our knowledge of the Bible by immersing ourselves in it and just experiencing what is in it. Um, not just having someone try to convince us that it's real or that it makes sense or that it's reliable, but to see the glory of God in it. And I, and I, just, I really believe, and I think it needs to be said, that this is not an irrational or a weak basis for belief. I think it's the strongest thing you could ever base your life on. There is, there is nothing better to base your life on than something that is, you've seen for yourself is real. That you've been convinced of in, in the same way that you can be convinced that the Great Barrier Reef is amazing. So I just want to try now to explain what, it, what I think or kind of how I think you see this glory. Um, and, 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 and an experience I think many of us have had in reading the Bible. Where do you see the glory? 
I think there's a bunch of places in the words of Scripture that you can capture the glory of God. I think you see it in the character of Jesus. I think you see it in this person who was unlike any other person that's ever lived. The way that he, he shone of just majesty and meekness. The book of Revelation describes Jesus as a lion and a lamb. That he's, he's ferociously passionate about justice, about love, about righting wrongs. And at the same time of that, it's marked with this meekness and, and servant-heartedness and generosity that his whole life was devoted to serving those around him. There is no one that has lived in that same way that Jesus has. There is glory to be seen in, in the prophecies that Jesus fulfills. We haven't spoken about the Old Testament today, but we will for a bunch of weeks. And there is writing about Jesus hundreds of years before he came, explaining exactly what God was going to do through him. And then Jesus lived up to this. He fulfilled prophecy made in, by dozens of different people at, at different times. And he did it in a way which showed it, which it was a way that no one could have seen coming. The, the, the people were promised a king who was going to come into Jerusalem, but Jesus came in not on a horse but on a donkey, ready to lay down his life for his people. There is something godlike in that. You see the glory in the miracles that Jesus did. Simply that there is no one in the history of our planet that has, that has had the power that Jesus has had in the way that he calmed storms, in the way that he, that he healed the sick and that he, that he raised the dead. But while showing off his power, which he could have done anything, he didn't use his power to oppress people, but he used the power that he had to serve and love a broken and hurting world. And I think you can see God in that. I think you can see the glory of the God and the bigness of, of, of who he is and what he's done in the gospel message itself. The, the way that the, the gospel, when you hear what Jesus has done for you and, and how it is that through what he has done by dying for you on the cross that you can be loved by God forever, cuts to the heart of our deepest need. That people throughout history have been convinced of the truth of this because when, because when they've heard the gospel and they've heard that Jesus died for them and that there's nothing that you could do to, to fix your sin and, and your, your brokenness and the distance that you feel between God until Jesus says, I can forgive you. And people have experienced having their, their eyes open to relationship with God, being, being filled with a sense of being loved by Him, of being freed from sin which enslaves us. And we see in the gospel the way that, that God deals with sin at the same time as he, as he holds on to the fact that sin is evil and it needs to be dealt with. He provides judgment as, as, as the guilt of sin is put on Jesus. But at the same time as that, God upholds His mercy in forgiving us. It's amazing. It's an amazing, glorious truth. I think you can see the glory of God in the way that he, he changes you. And maybe you see it in the way that he changes people around you. As people who, for our whole lives, have been selfish, broken, greedy, hateful, and unforgiving, are transformed to be more like Jesus through, through reading the Bible and spending time with him. That, that there's, there's no explanation other than God for, for these people becoming more joyful, more generous, more forgiving, more loving. I think you can see the glory of God in the way that the Bible shapes church communities around the world, where the church is a, a group of people that just defies social or economic or racial or cultural boundaries to become a group of people committed to each other with a deep bond of love because we are gathered around the God who made the universe. I think you can see the glory of God in the scriptures in the way that it sheds light on everything else. Uh, in the same way that, 
you, the sun, you know the sun is bright, not just by looking at it and having it burn your eyes. You can know the sun is bright by seeing that it, it brings light to our whole world. That you can see everything else. That the more you, you understand of God and his scriptures, the more everything else makes sense. Um, the way that, that, that you think about your work or your relationships or your money or, or fun or community or, or evil or the past or the future or meaning or morality, everything else makes sense in light of what we presented in the Bible. And I think as we look over all these things, Jesus and, he, and the prophecies fulfilled, his character, his miracles, the gospel message, the way that we're changed, the way the community is changed, the way that everything makes sense, and if that's the experience you have when you look at the Bible, I don't think it's crazy to conclude that there, there is a glory in that, that this is the work of God. There is nothing better to base your life on not, you don't, we're not saying you need to just you know, take a, a leap of faith and, and guess that the Bible's true. You can see in all of these things that it is. You can see in all of these things that God has revealed himself to us and has spoken to us. Now, I think this has some implications for us and, 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 and probably for a bunch of different, different ones of us in, in different ways. But the simplest implication is that if, if this is true, that true knowledge that the Bible is true comes from, from seeing in it God, then the way we test this is by actually looking at it, actually reading it. Um, I think we need to be doing this as Christians. We need to be continually reminding ourselves of, of the foundations of our faith, which is what we know of God, not just from what we think about him or what we conclude about him, but what he shows us in the Bible. If we're someone who's trying to investigate and, and find out what it's all about. Is there any truth to this? Or is this just you know, some you know, weird bunch of people? Um, don't just look at us. Look at the Bible. Go and look at it. The, the daily reading books we've got at the back and this plan and you know, reading through 70 little bits of the Bible, not, definitely not the whole Bible, but a bit of everything in the Bible, um, isn't just because we, oh, we meant to read the Bible, we've got to find a way to do it. This is an opportunity to see God to see the glory of God. And over the last month, as I've looked through these 70 readings and read over them, I've just been convinced more, more than I had in a long time, that this book is incredible, that it's life-changing, that what it has to offer is just simply nothing, nothing you could find anywhere else. So I encourage you to read it. I encourage you to commit to reading for 70 days. If you miss some, that's fine. Just jump back on and, and, and do it. But, but, but give this a go. Take one of those reading books. If you don't own a Bible, take a Bible as well. Take Ebony's Bible reading uh, questions that she's got at the back as well and actually dig into this stuff and together let's look and see if this is true. See what we can see of God in this writing. The second implication of this though is I think you know, we brushed over the start of that passage in 2 Corinthians where it says that, that Satan is at work to, to blind us to these things and that really it's only God that can give light. Which means that there, there are going to be times that we, we read the Bible and don't see anything. We're not feeling overwhelmingly convinced of it or that it's amazing or that it's, you know, and there, there could be any number of reasons for this. It could be that we just don't want it to be true because it's threatening something else that we hold too dear, you know, a love of money or of a certain person or of, or of an idea about ourselves or a way that we want to live. Um, it might be that we have just the wrong idea, these, these kind of unrealistic standards that we're demanding from the Bible and it doesn't live up to. But it might just be that we do want it to be true and we, we, we wish we saw something, and, but when we read, we're just kind of still filled with doubt or dullness or 
skepticism. And I think, if nothing else, that should humble us. Paul says that it's God who gives light, which means we need to recognize that we're ultimately powerless to go out on a little mission and find God, that we are utterly dependent on God showing himself to us, which means we need to be prayerful. We need to be asking God to show himself to us. There is nothing we can do beyond that, really, at the end of the day. Um, it's, it's in God's hands. We need to be dependent on him and humble and pleading. And next week, Gab's going to be speaking more about the practicality of this. You know, how, do you, how do you read in, in the Bible in a way that's prayerful and dependent and, and asking God to actually be personally involved in that experience? So come back next Sunday to hear Gab speak on that and to think on that point more deeply. But the third thing I want to say and I want to finish with, is that this hasn't been by any means an exhaustive look on the reason to believe that the Bible's true. It's scraped the surface. Uh, and so if you're, if you're wrestling through this and you've got questions, for, so say, say you're someone who's, who's looking into Christianity and you're like, I, look, you know, you've just touched on all these things that have raised big problems. We haven't even talked about, you know, it said Jesus has miracles. What do you mean miracles? How, how does that fit with science? Or you're... Or you're you're hung up when we, when we talked about the objectivity, that this, the implication of this, right, is that, that other religions aren't right. W- what do you make of that? If these are the questions that are kind of holding you, you're like, I want to see more of that evidence. You've just said there's evidence, but that doesn't mean that it's right. I could have made all that, that kind of stuff up. If, if you want to look into all these things more deeply, we want to create a space to do that, and we're, we're hoping to get a, a group of people together to talk about these things, you know, one, one night during the week on a Tuesday or a Thursday, just to be able to chat about these kind of big questions. And I'd love for you to get in touch if that's something you'd be interested in. There's white cards on your seat. That's an easy way to get in touch. And even if you're someone who's been a Christian for ages, but you're actually finding some of those questions really hard and you, you know, you're doubting and you're wondering and you want to talk about this stuff, then I'd encourage you to do that. The other thing I'd encourage you to do if, you, if you're still looking into it is grab one of the books at the back. We've got so many books up there. And the reason they're there is they're just helpful to think deeper. Um, this book here, The Reason for God, if you're someone who's not yet convinced on the, the basic truths of Christianity, I think this is a very helpful book in how it is that you can come to a belief in an age of skepticism. And it looks on questions on science and, and, and suffering and, um, and, and the reliability of the Bible and all that kind of stuff. And this book here, uh, When I Don't Desire God by John Piper, is a book written really for Christians, people who have maybe at one point in your life you felt like God was amazing, you felt close to him, uh, and, it, and you loved reading the Bible, and yet for whatever reason, right now, you're feeling like God's distant, like when you read the Bible it's tough, you're just not kind of feeling passionate, not feeling joyful, you're not seeing the glory. This book is a book on how to fight to see, how to fight to see more of the glory of God and have that fill us in a joyful way. It's one of the most helpful books I've ever read, and so we've got up the back, um, Come talk to me if you want any of these books. Even if you don't have any money, come talk to me if you want either of these books. We've got a bunch up there as well. So I just want to pray now as we finish. There's a few things to go away with. Um, and, I, and I really do want us to actually not just kind of stop here, but to this be the start. Tomorrow morning, we're going to be starting these Bible readings. As a church, we're going to do it. It's going to be going off on Facebook. You don't have to have Facebook to do it, though. You can just be reading along. But to actually commit to seeing more of God through his word in the Bible. And so that's what I want to pray over now, that God be with us as we do that. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word.